Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. You know how people always say U.S. politics weren't so toxic in the good old days? Well, really? Or is it all pretty much the same, but our memories are shoddy? Let's get to the bottom line. Spanish philosopher George Santayana is famous for saying those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Even though really big surprises can happen and change everything, the truth is that if you hang around long enough, you'll see the same cycles repeat themselves, especially in politics. At least that's the message that I get from reading the memoirs of my guest today, who had a front seat, well, more like a front podium to decades of American history. He is Chris Matthews, longtime roving D.C. bureau chief of the San Francisco Examiner, speechwriter for President Jimmy Carter, former host of the TV show Hardball on MSNBC, which was a political institution for more than 20 years. He retired last year and recently published his autobiography, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Chris Matthews, it's terrific to have you with us today. Let me just ask you about... Uh, the frame you had when I read about you getting into politics, coming out of the you know the Catholic scene in in in, in Pennsylvania, and you know getting a patronage job, you know all of the inner workings of those political forces at the time. You know it kind of reminded me that it had kind of a tribal dimension. And so as I look at new tribes emerging uh, in American politics today, you know I'm just interested in whether or not we're just at the front end of what it was like when Boston Catholics were, or Philadelphia Catholics came in, and how, you know, whether or not we're just reliving history and, and aren't yet quite really um, realizing it. Well, I was on, a, I was on Tip O'Neill's last junket, uh, Codell, back in 86. It was, uh, it was all over Latin America. We went everywhere. We went to Buenos Aires. We went to uh, Brasilia. We went to uh, De Rio. We went to uh, Venezuela. We went to the Dominican Republic. It was quite a trip. And there were a lot of business meetings and all, but it was fun. And it wasn't until I went, we got to Easter Sunday uh, in the Dominican Republic in Casa de Campa, that golf, tour, uh, that golf uh, resort, that I noticed that everybody was at mass. I mean, the Republicans, the Democrats, the Jolly Wrangle was there, who's African-American. Everybody was there. And I said, what does this group have in common? And I realized they were all Catholic. So I don't know how much uh, Tip O'Neill put that put into that, but that's the way it turned out. And I go, oh, this is interesting. And I think about his pals. They weren't all Catholics, but certainly he had that affinity with Jack Murtha and Charlie Rangel and uh, people like that. And uh, it was interesting. So I guess there was tribes. I know when I first went knocking on the hill, knocking on doors on Capitol Hill after getting back from the Peace Corps, I started with the Irish Catholics. Trouble is, I got one who was mobbed up. I won't give his name, but he was clearly mobbed up. They had a terrible expose on him about a body being taken out of his basement. It was a loan shark. This guy was in, in real deep uh, with the Hudson County Democratic machine, which was corrupt, certainly then. And, um, and he was mobbed. And they had the FBI tape recordings on him uh, working with a local capo, helping him protect his gambling interest into operation and syndicate. So uh, that wasn't a smart move. But that was the way I began looking for a job. I thought the Peace Corps, Holy Cross, where I went to college, would help me get the door open in those cases. It didn't particularly help. I ended up, ironically, with Tip O'Neill for six years. We certainly fit the bill. I ended up actually, in that case, working for a, a, a very devout Mormon from Utah, uh, Wayne Owens, who was top aide to Frank Moss, the last liberal senator from Utah. 
but uh, that's how I started off. So, yeah, I guess I had a little bit well, of that uh, uh, tribalism in me. But it's, 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 it's really, a, you know, what I really enjoyed about your book and the stories you tell is you tell the great and good. You talk about America at its best. You talk about American patriotism. But you had this frame. I mean, you were a cop. Uh, you know, got a job yeah. walking along Pennsylvania Avenue at night, which I found um, amusing. And we Very may reflect scary. on that in a minute. But I think there's another side to it, which is if you look at the other myth of American politics, is that it's a melting pot, that we've got people from all backgrounds and races that can come yeah. to you. Talk about the magic of America being a place that people can come to and be accepted and, and be here. I found it very powerful. But at the same time, when you get into this town in Washington, D.C., we've got, you know, right now the Democratic Party divided into different factions. You know, we've got the left. We've got, yeah. uh, you know, folks in the center. Uh, we've got a Joe Manchin. We've got, an, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We have the black and brown communities, as you write in your book, that are finding their places. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is where it comes out or whether this kind of, you know, bumper cars of these different groups is really a lot like what you started out in in the 70s uh, and, and whether they or, or have we evolved so that we can actually uh, be, well, Steve, you know, better. That's just a rich question, because uh, I remember we used to have these Democratic re retreats uh, down at Greenbrier, West Virginia, that wonderful old sort of antebellum uh, resort. And I love the fact that we had sort of uh, amateurs, uh, so amateur entertainment nights. And you'd have the country western guys, the country guys from the south singing along. And you had uh, Dan Glickman, who's Jewish, doing Al Jolson. He was pretty good at Al Jolson. Not great, but pretty good at Al Jolson. Uh, you had a gay member who was openly gay there in, in a sort of his, his wardrobe selection, I would say, his choices. Um, it was a great mixture of liberals, conservatives, northerners, southerners, all kinds of people. Uh, they were all Democrats. They were not all homogeneously uh, politically together. That's for sure. They were Southern Democrats in, that, in those days still. So it was a coalition party rather than a party of identity or a party of, what's the right word, of ideology. It was not a party of ideology. Today, it's increasingly becoming a party of ideology. Uh, the progressive group is getting noisier, appropriately so. They come from the big cities, generally. They come from minority groups, people of color, generally. Uh, they're being heard in every newspaper article you read about uh, infrastructure today. You can't pick up an article about infrastructure or policing or immigration. Certainly doesn't have voices from that new progressive wing, from the minority, if you will, wing. And that's all there now that's new. That's certainly new. They're, they're not just keeping you know, showing up and being uh, office uh, uh, servers, time servers, they're in there to make a point and say it and, and make a message. And in fact, they're very urgent about it. So that's different. I think that we have a louder left than we did back then. We have a disappeared right, and there's no more right-wing Democratic Party. And then there's no more real moderate Republican Party left. Uh, what's called moderate Republican Day is sort of conservative, Demo conservative Republicans like uh, Portman and uh, Toomey, of the northern areas, and, and maybe, I guess, my, Susan Collins. But there aren't many Murkowski from Alaska. But generally, anybody who's not Trump in the bag with Trump is called a, a moderate Republican now. Uh, but the parties are much more like the British parties now today, right. much more ideological party. The liberal, the, in Britain, you've got the Labour Party, which is left, whether it's Tony Blair one time or it's Boris Johnson. On the conservative side, the wet Tory, I guess he's a Tory wet. He's sort of a moderate conservative. Um, 
but clearly the parties are becoming more ideological. That's different. You are deep into covering politics. You are also in politics. I want to tell my viewers that you actually ran for Congress once. You lost in the primary, but you gave it a good go and you went knocking on every door that you could get, get near. Yeah. But as, as you kind of look at that, you know, one of the things I was looking at, you were aware of all the dimensions. And one of the things you write about in the book is, you know, that the rise of Trump was related to earlier movements like Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan. I would have gone one step further and raised George Wallace, who was one of the you know, big race baiters uh, in America, and looked, yeah. looked at, that, at that dimension of the George Wallace dimensions. But that's been with us for decades and decades and decades. So given your experience... Uh, yeah, and, I, and it's, it's, it has a number of pieces to it. Part of it is, is race, nativism. Yeah, that's all there. It also has some new pieces of it that are... Actually go back to McCarthy, Joe McCarthy. Mm. Anti-elitism, anti-Ivy League. A resentment of people who think they're better than us because of their academic success. Uh, I think that's a big, big draw among the Trump people, uh, making fun of the uh, academic elite. Even though he talks about going to Penn and going to the Wharton School at Penn, he, he has a wonderful, I mean, a politically wonderful undertone of grievance, of resentment. You look at the, uh, the biggest demar demarcation point in American politics today is probably education. If you've had an higher education at a university or college, you were probably not Trumpian, probably. That's general rule. If you haven't had a higher education, if you work with your hands or you're a skilled craftsman, for example, you're probably with Trump. So that's, that's McCarthy. I remember not long ago reading one of his speeches on tape about uh, those who live in our finest houses, those who went to our best universities, they're the ones uh, basically defending the communists. So they're very much, he was always tying it in. There's a little bit of anti-Semitism in there, to put it lightly. But there was a kind of an anti-academic elite that Trump plays on. And then, of course, Joe, George Wallace, to make your point, Steve, would talk about the, the, the pointy-headed uh, bureaucrats with their attache cases with, filled with peanut butter sandwiches. You know, he had a way of putting down their uh, sort of bureaucratic elitism making them look like frauds, which is what he wanted to do. They weren't really that smart, but they carried attache cases around to make themselves look smart and official. Um, yeah, this, these are common strains, nativism, racism, certainly ethnic, ethnic prejudice, uh, and uh, anti-elite, anti-academic elite are in these strains going back to Pat Buchanan. Um, uh, I mean, Pat would say things like, how's that Brandeis football team doing this year? He had very clever ways to get a giggle out of people. Um, and um, he knew who he was talking to. Pat yeah. knew. There was a pro-life crowd that had a lot of ethnic attitude with, along with their uh, pro-life position. Is Donald Trump a patriot? No. Uh, the great thing our country has going for us has been, has been the uh, almost miraculous marriage of honest elections every two years for Congress going back to 1789 or and presidential election every four years. Uh, this absolute belief in our electoral system, the Electoral College, to the point where Hillary Clinton would lose by, win by 400, 4 million votes, and the popular vote just next morning announced she lost with great grace. The same with Al Gore, uh, same with Jack, with Dick Nixon back in 60, where he met with Jack Kennedy after a very tricky election in Chicago, where there were questions about dead people voting and still he knew for the good of the country he should meet with Kennedy, and he did that following Monday. They drank Cokes together down at the Key Biscayne, Biscayne Hotel. 
And my God, he just gave it to Jack Kenny. He said, it's all yours. You have won. Let there be no interruption in our leadership during the Cold War. It was grand. Even Ted Kennedy came out, said after Nixon died, said what, what grace Nixon showed in that election and accepting its results. And he had reasons for complaint because Texas had no procedure for re recounting. And there's certainly questions about Cook County under Dick Daly. So uh, the, all the founding fathers just didn't put that in. They didn't right. say you must concede defeat. You can't. But it's almost like he has broken the unwritten rule of American politics. I have loved, I've gloried in concession speeches. I used to always argue with our producers and the bosses on top. Please make a point to show as many concession speeches as you can on election night, because it's what makes elections into sacraments. Because they're they're absolutely faithful to the democratic will, and even the guy or woman who loses says so that I lost. I I let down my supporters. I accept the verdict of the majority. I lost. He or she won. And Hillary and everybody, John Kerry, John McCain, everybody has done that dutifully, going back to, certainly in my lifetime, to Adlai Stevenson, when he said beautifully, I'm too old to cry, but uh, too, it hurts too much to laugh. Well, well, and uh, that's what we want from our leaders, is grace under pressure and in defeat. Well, well, Chris, one of the things that gave me chills reading your book was the part that a part of history that I didn't know. I guess it was in the 60s. Uh, you can correct that if I'm wrong. When there was a bomb placed in the rotunda of the Capitol and that there were protests at that time and protesters coming up the Capitol and that a congressperson at that time told you, wow, I was worried what the police would do to these young kids out there out there protesting. But it reminded me of just, you know, a flashback. But in that time, they did not break through to the Capitol. They did not bomb the rotunda. That didn't come through. But we saw another point in history with a very different outcome. Yeah, that was Belle Absolute, the very anti-war woman who wore the hat, famous for wearing a hat from uh, Manhattan, the, uh, the West Side. Uh, she was very nice. She came up to me. She said, how, like a regular person, working person, she said, my feet are killing me. She was just chatting with me. And you were a policeman, so right? You, you were yeah, a policeman. And she said, I'm in uniform. I had my Marty, Marty Milner haircut, my short hair and everything. And, uh, and she was very warm and friendly, very friendly. And there also was a guy, a, a tourist in that same vein, who came up to me when I was war, I was sort of patrolling the west front of the Capitol right before the demonstration. This was the May Day demonstration of 1971. And he said, hit him once for me. I couldn't, I can't tell you how much contempt I had for that person. He thought I was some thug who was, who'd like batting people over the head with a nightstick. I don't know what he thought, but he thought that was cute to come up to me and say, hit him once for me. But... In tribute to the police leadership in those days, it was better than it is this year, in January 6th, because to be prepared, I remember going down in the lower floor of the Capitol. I forgot whether it was the mezzanine or it was the basement. There was a whole force of SWAT team people, all in riot gear, helmets, shields, everything, ready to go to work if anybody did something that really caused trouble. They kept them in reserve. Just think if they had done that simple thing of having the cavalry really ready up in the, on the hill, in a sense, on January 6th. Then they could have rushed to the doors with their shields and their riot gear, stopped everybody from coming into the Capitol, and prevented the whole thing. But the leadership, and that's the sergeants at arm and the leadership of the House and the Senate, didn't do that. They didn't prepare for the worst. And then they, they left their patrolmen, their regular officers, to face that frightening mob with their regular civilian, uh, not civilian, but their day-to-day -day uniforms, day-to-day -day equipment. 
you know, they didn't even have nightclubs. They didn't have anything. All they had was guns they really couldn't use. And so um, they weren't supposed they can't. You can't start firing into a mob of Americans like that. You can't use the firepower. You can't use you can't use that kind of violent force against uh, fellow Americans who are demonstrating, even if it's so forcefully. You can't just shooting people down. But they left them basically disarmed, effectively disarmed, to face that mob, that frightening mob. And I, I blame it on the leaders. I don't want to see an investigation. I know why. I, I know why the leaders wouldn't want an investigation. Why didn't you equip your rank and file police officers with the equipment and the backup they needed that day? They needed backup. Right. And they did it back in '71. They didn't do it this time. They didn't give them backup. Well, Chris, one of the questions I want to get to, and it kind of addresses in part, you know, when you left MSNBC and there was some, you know, turmoil around that at that, that moment. But I want to ask you a question. When you read your book and you were at John Paul II's funeral, you were when the Berlin Wall came down, you were you, you saw Hungary and went in Hungary when the Soviets were, were doing this. You saw these moments in an American life which were tense and a lot of things happening. I'm just wondering if somehow the framing that our newer generations are bringing to America and a lot of the debates we're, we have right now are somehow they've got amnesia about all these other uh, contributions of what it took to become an American and whether or not we're fra more fragile as a nation than we think. And, and, and in terms of referencing, you know, the case of how we complement each other or something, it seems to me to be so trivial yeah. compared to, you know, how we dealt with the Vietnam War or how we deal with Afghanistan and Iraq and hard choices out there that you covered. Uh, do you think we are falling into a trap of becoming too uh, uh, self-serious and lost when it comes to some of the big issues that America has to contend with? Well, I think some issues at uh, the time has come that we address them, and we don't always address them uh, maybe the best possible way, but certainly uh, on the issue of gender equality at work, which is, I guess, the sort of the context in which I found myself in a situation back uh, last year, was I've been a big pro proponent of that. I mean, I've always made sure my Sunday shows had 50-50. I mean, I was arbitrary about it. Nancy Nathan and I, we created this, this Sunday Chris Matthews show. We insisted that every single Sunday there be two men and two women. We said, we're not going to deviate from that. We're not going to say we couldn't find the right woman or any game like that. We're not going to play games. There's going to always be equality here on the set. Right. When I went to pick executive producers, I picked women, generally really smart, best executives I could find. They were women. So I knew we needed to move in. My wife, had been, as you might point out, was an anchor woman in D.C. for 15 years. She understood there was inequality in the way they paid people, the way they dealt with people, even, even anchored, anchored people. And so I was very sensitive about that, where I was out of date, was in recognizing, really personally recognized, that there, there is something truly wrong about complimenting someone's appearance at work. Now, everybody from every generation has their own view on it. My view was it was a legitimate complaint, and I acted, I said, well, I'm out of here. I wasn't going to leave it to NBC or MSNBC to sort of put some sort of sanction on me, some punishment of some kind. I wasn't going to get involved in that. So I said, okay, there was a complaint. It was honest. It was accurate. It was wrong. What I did was wrong. So I'm out of here. And as that, there's never been a clear, and the reporting on it was, I think, somewhat clear, but not that clear. Well, but certainly in my book, I make it clear what happened. And yeah. Well, one day I'm down in Charleston covering the, the South Carolina primary. The next day I'm out of there. Right. So it was cause and effect. Well, I, th I think you did a great job explaining, you know, what, what happened there. But it also raised this interesting question of where are we as a nation? Are we are we tribes that are all fighting each other or are we actually trying to understand each other, have empathy, 
and kind of, you know, build this thing. And, you know, I comes in, I'm going to ask you a question. You know, if Chris Matthews were on hardball tonight, I thought of some topics, you know. Maybe you might cover, you know, Biden's belly flop on, you know, the infrastructure deal. Or he might cover, you know, pulling out of Afghanistan. Or you might cover, you know, the role of Joe Manchin and whether or not Senator okay, Manchin, right, who's I a... I can do those. I, I can do those. I think uh, infrastructure is the key thing. And as Howard Baker, the great former Republican leader of the Senate was, you know, all you need to know about the Senate from what you learned in arithmetic in about third grade, you need 60 votes to break a filibuster. And so Biden needs 60. He may have 55 now, but he needs 60. Mm. And my question is, can we get it the old way, which is all politics is local? If I were running the show in, the, uh, in Schumer's office right now, in the White House, I would play hardball. Mm. I would, first of all, make sure that every Democrat was aware of all the projects, the roads, building uh, tunnels, bridges, all that stuff that needs work. It's, that's right now in bad shape in their state. They're aware of it and they tell their people about it. Get the list, county by county. That's what I did with Frank Moss in Utah. I went through Ogden, Salt Lake. I went through every county and I listened and I found out how many projects were shovel ready, ready to go and should be done. It's just a question of getting funded. And then I tell everybody in my state, this is why I'm voting for the infrastructure bill, because right. we need this work done here in my state, in your state. I bring the issue home to people. Don't make a theoretical big spending issue to the Democrats. Democrats always lose that argument. They are big spenders. Don't let the issue be spending. Make the issue what needs to be done at home. David Garth, the great Democratic consultant in New York, who got everybody elected, Ed Koch and everybody, Lindsay, everybody, he said, replace the smell of decay with the smell of construction, the smell of dirt being moved. That's what people like. That's not about Democrat and Republican. It's about stuff getting done in the public interest. Don't let it be a theoretical argument over spending, or the Democrats could well lose the sine qua non, the bill they have to pass, which is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. If they lose that, I think they, the Republicans roll the table from here to the next election, next Chris, November. Chris, we've they got have about, to win this. We've, got, to play we've got about 45 seconds. Is that a good you, answer? Yeah, that's a, a great answer. Stand? Is that a good yeah, answer? We'll, have, we'll talk about Joe Manchin next time. But I, I'm going to go, you know, we've got just a few, few seconds left. But I just want to ask you one big hardball question. Are you a politician basically deep down in, in journalist clothing trying to burst out? And, and how does, you know, to our viewers who, who are thinking about politics and journalism, how do you keep those lines right? And, and what is Chris Matthews really? Well, what you really do is the difference. I look at heroes like Mary McGrory, Peggy Noonan. You can have a point of view that coincides a lot with one of the two political parties. But you have to be honest to your point of view, not to the party. You have to want to take them down when they're bad, whether it's Watergate or whatever it is, or Monica, whatever it is. You have to willing to separate your views, which normally coincide with a, the political party, one political party, from loyalty to the party itself. You have to be independent of the party itself and to its people. But you can be generally aligned with their points of view. But that's a big difference between being a partisan hack or right. flack working for the DNC or the RNC. If right. you're just knocking out press releases, Right. For one of the political parties, you are a hack. That's what I think. Well, listen, the, the <laughs> I think book, that's pretty strong. The, the book is This Country, My Life in Politics and History, and the author is Chris Matthews, legendary former TV host of Hardball on MSNBC. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. Steve Clemens, thank you so much for the big audience. So what's the bottom line? My guest today deeply believes that U.S. democracy has its fragile moments, but that in the long run, it's only going to get stronger. I'd love to share his unshaking faith in this country's ability to correct itself and appeal to its higher angels. 
The truth is that America and what it stands for has come close to crashing down so many times before. The contest is real, folks. There is no Hollywood ending where the good folks are guaranteed to win, and justice prevails. I hope Chris Matthews is right. Wouldn't that be nice? But Trumpism is winding up for another chance at bat. QAnon is America's biggest online conspiracy game and reality show. It will take all the will and focus and work of Americans to keep the country moving in a direction that we could really call democracy. And that's the bottom line.